0: Midtown Detroit studios of WDET.
1: This is Detroit Today.
0: We'll start today with Congressman Andy Levin, a Democrat from Bloomfield Bloomfield Township, who's going to talk with us about the infrastructure bill in Washington the budget reconciliation process, and other things going on in the Capitol. Then we're going to meet a group of staffers from Michigan State University who work to get 77 people out of Afghanistan to escape the Taliban. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. NPR. to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you decided to join us. A little later in the show, we're going to hear about a really fascinating and harrowing effort by a group of staffers at Michigan State University to get 77 people out of Afghanistan recently to escape the Taliban. I'm going to talk with one of the coordinators who was working to get those people out as well as an MSU staffer who was one of the people stuck in Afghanistan while facing threats to her life. You really are not going to want to miss uh, that conversation. It is a really interesting story, an international story with a very fascinating local wrinkle to it. But first, President Joe Biden is in Michigan today to try to help build support for his bipartisan infrastructure package. That visit happens as efforts to pass that legislation while also making massive investments in climate change mitigation, childcare, and more have screeched to a pretty sudden halt in Congress. Progressive Democrats are holding firm against more moderate efforts to dramatically scale back the overall cost of the reconciliation bill. They say the 3.5 trillion dollar plan they expected to vote on this month was already a compromise and that much less than that just wouldn't represent a serious effort to combat climate change and make much needed investments in childcare, immigration and other areas. That's where we want to begin the conversation today with this stalemate in Congress and uncertainties surrounding Really important pieces of the president's agenda as he comes to Michigan today to make the case for those things. Here to talk about what's happening and why he's still a firm no on this bipartisan infrastructure bill without a Senate vote on the Build Back Better package is Michigan Congressman Andy Levin. He's a Democrat from Bloomfield Township, and he represents Michigan's 9th District in Washington. Uh, Congressman, welcome back to Detroit Today.
2: Good morning, Stephen. It's great to be with you.
0: So let's start with what I just was talking about. You are a no on this infrastructure bill, unless there is a vote in the Senate on the reconciliation bill. I feel like sometimes these things are very confusing for normal average Americans who do not serve in Congress to quite understand. So I want to give you a chance to explain the procedural move that you're making, and then talk about the the, the substantive context for that, why you're doing what you're doing.
2: Sure. Well, I think in a way the president just ended one chapter and began another when he visited uh, the House Democrats uh, in our caucus on Friday. Um, And so in a way, the fact that many of us, dozens of us progressives said, uh, we're not you know, we want to keep our deal that we had, which is tie the two together, the infrastructure bill and, and the bill that does so much for kids and families and workers. Um, w- the president said, yes, that's what we're going to do. So now it's all about negotiating what the Build Back Better uh, Act includes. We'd like it to include what the president wants, his $3.5 trillion package. Some people want it to be, you know, not includes uh, all of it. And, you know, the headline in The New York Times today is that lobbyists are madly trying to undermine the president's agenda by chipping away at things they don't like, like the wealthiest people and big corporations paying for their fair share of it, or people getting dental vision and hearing through Medicare and other things that the corporate interests don't want to see there. But we – I just want to emphasize, Stephen, from the beginning, the whole progressive caucus to a person has said we are 100 percent for the the president's bipartisan infrastructure package, and we're all going to vote for it. We just think that we need to make sure that the rest of the president's package, the vast majority of it, is fully realized as well. And so that's what we're – and the president basically said, yes, we're going to do it all together. And so now it's about negotiating what gets included in the Build Back Better Act.
1: Mm.
0: There are, as you point out, a significant number of criticisms being leveled against this this legislation. People saying it's too big, that it's trying to do too much. Uh, the Detroit News today had an opinion piece that said it's a big leap into socialism, that word that uh, is used often to trigger kind of reflexive objections to things here in, in this country. Uh, talk about why you think a bill that large is appropriate, and talk about whether it's trying to do too much, that it, that it too fundamentally changes uh, our capitalist system.
2: Well, so the Detroit News and other conservatives called Social Security socialism when that happened in the New Deal, Medicare, Medicaid, the whole basis of our safety net in our capitalist, very capitalist society, they, you know, whenever we try to make the, the safety net secure and especially make it just for people of color and poor people and immigrants and people who have often been excluded, they run to that word. But th- what the president said to us on Friday and what we're all saying is, I, forget about a top line, talk about the programs. So, childcare available to everybody and no family would have to pay more than 7% of their income for childcare. Don't we need that to have a well functioning capitalist society? Do we want women to work too? You know, just from a year ago, August to September in that height of the pandemic, 865,000 women left the workforce in one month. They didn't become unemployed, they left the workforce altogether because they had to take care of their babies and their kids and their and their old folks. And so we've got to have childcare. What about universal pre-K? Is that socialism? Do we want all of our kids to have a great start, to be able to do well in school? You know, that's often been considered by researchers to be about the best investment you can make in terms of return on the dollar, because kids have higher lifelong earnings. That means more tax revenue. That means better workers. They have uh, less trouble with the law. So, that's really important. What about free community college? You know, is that socialism? Michigan's already trying to do it. Many uh, European countries do it. How about paid family leave? We're like the only country that doesn't do that, Stephen. All those other capitalist countries do it. So we, you know, all of this is about making the economy fairer, work better, include everybody. And none of it is about uh, the government taking over the means of production, or other things—that is what socialism actually means. Mm. That's just a bogeyman. We need to, uh, you know, help uh, everyone have a great chance in our society, and not live paycheck to paycheck so much. Right, be able to breathe, um, and and get their little piece of the American dream. Mm. So we're really supportive of of uh, the president's agenda. And we're going to do our best to get it passed as fulsomely as possible.
0: So uh, talk about the price tag, $3.5 trillion. That's one of the things that I think is getting people's attention and maybe fueling some of the criticism of this legislation. How can we afford that? And, And why does it make sense to spend that much money at a time when uh, of course, you know, uh, the economy is, is doing well, but uh, there are lots of concerns about debt
2: out there. Um, well, so, you know, first of all, if you pay for something, the price tag in terms of the debt or deficit is zero. And we are ready to pay for every penny of $3.5 trillion, or, you know, it's going to be somewhat less evidently, you know, whatever that number is. By having the wealthiest individuals, uh, the president has said people making over $400,000 a year pay their share of taxes. We've seen great research that came out not long ago about some of our very, very wealthiest people paying way less in taxes than a secretary or a reporter or an anchor on a radio show (laughs) 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 or who are normal people, you know, and corporations paying the big corporations, which often pay zero taxes effectively, let them pay their fair share. Let's let the let's strengthen the IRS just to what it used to be so that they can collect the taxes people actually owe. So we're ready to pay uh, for all of it. You know, Stephen, over the history of presidencies uh, going back many decades, the actual fact is that the debt and deficit have decreased in Democratic Administrations uh, compared to Republican administrations, and the Republicans have done things like the tax giveaway of December 2017 uh, under President Trump. They didn't pay for any of it, and it costs 1.9 trillion dollars over a short term in raising our debt. And 83 percent of the benefits went to the very wealthiest Americans. So we're let's, we're saying. Let's invest in the working class, in the middle class, in poor people. Um, just look at this one thing we've done, which needs to be extended in the Build Back Better Act, the child tax credit. Evidence is already showing that it really is lifting about half of poor kids out of poverty. Hmm. Who can argue with that? Hmm. Hmm.
0: I'm talking with Congressman Andy Levin. He's a Democrat from Bloomfield Township. He represents Michigan's 9th District. In Washington, we're talking about uh, the infrastructure bill, uh, the reconciliation budget bill, and all of these pieces of President Joe Biden's agenda that all of a sudden seem like maybe they're in a bit of doubt. Uh, Biden is here in Michigan today making the case for all of these changes, all of these investments he'd like to make. He's going to howl. Uh, and and not coming here uh, to Detroit, which is something I want to talk uh, about in a little bit. But we want to hear from you, the listeners, as well uh, about what you think. What questions do you have about what's happening in Congress now with both the infrastructure and Build Back Better bills? Do you think progressives should be willing to take a vote on infrastructure without a vote on this bigger reconciliation bill? Or are you glad that progressives are standing pretty firm in order to get as much funding as possible for things like climate change, immigration, uh, and child care? Uh, give us a sense of where you come down on President Joe Biden's agenda so far and this pretty sweeping set of uh, bills that he would like to enact that would really change some uh, some of the uh, social fabric of uh, our country. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, Andy, I do want to talk about, uh, where the president is going. I think it's really interesting that he's going to Howell when he, uh, when he comes today, uh, talk about why that's a place that he feels like this is the case that needs to be made. When you say Howell, you don't really think about democratic voters in this state. Uh, you think about a pretty conservative part of Michigan. So why go there?
2: Well, the truth is, Stephen, that where he's really going is an amazing uh, uh, facility, the operating engine, the International Union of Operating Engineers Local 324 Training Center. Right. And it is, I don't know if you've ever been there, it's a very large piece of property where people literally, like, drive bulldozers around and learn how to master those. They you, work, you know, operate cranes and try to drop you know, big heavy uh, balls of of concrete into like little cylinders <laughs> to become <laughs> the kind of best trained uh, you know operating engineers in the world that we you know we train here in the United States. They're union members, and so Joe Biden is a champion of the working class. Is going to a place where people learn to do these great jobs, get these great jobs, really make good wages and benefits. And I think what's brilliant about it is, you know, that people have made this artificial distinction between the so-called infrastructure bill and the, the Build Back Better Act. But actually, the Build Back Better Act includes a lot of very hard infrastructure, like in the House version that we passed through the Education Labor Committee, $80 billion for school construction. That's good union jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also... We have money for apprenticeships and all the job training money in these two bills combined is in the Build Back Better Act. So that we can train a lot more people in the way they train them there at the you know, the operating engineers facility to be ready to do all these jobs. As you know, employers are having a hard time finding trained people for the work they need to do. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a really smart choice of a place, as you say, you know, in the middle of the state where you know, people haven't, you know, maybe always uh, voted for him in in large numbers. To go emphasize that he's really about raising the standard of living for for America's workers, good jobs, well-paying jobs, uh, and uh, you know, t- making sure everybody can have that kind of opportunity. Mm.
0: Uh, again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Bradley in Livonia. Bradley, yeah. welcome to the conversation. Yeah. Hey. Are you there, Bradley? Go ahead.
2: Oh yeah. Oh okay. Uh, no, I was just uh, curious
3: as to how this uh, three point five trillion dollars will uh, increase the national debt to I believe over a hundred and twenty-five trillion is. Uh,
0: Bradley, uh, uh, appreciate the call and the question. We were talking earlier about that price tag, uh, but but Andy, uh, give a give another explanation here of that price tag and and its relationship to to debt
2: well you know Stephen, one of the things that i think uh my side of the political aisle isn't always the best at is uh the messaging <laughs> and so actually this three and a half trillion dollars is over 10 years so it's really you know 350 billion dollars a year um and we are willing to pay for it and we want I, I, i'm not just willing to i want to as a matter of principle so uh we are ready to and this is what a lot of this lobbying is happening that the uh the the wealthy interests and the corporate interests are trying to um get more conservative democrats to to thank them for opposing Uh, some of the mechanisms that we use to pay for uh, the Build Back Better Act. Mm. The Senate and the House have slightly different proposals about what's the pay-fors, you know, but in any event, we are intent on uh, paying for it or as much of it as we can. And then there's a second really important point here, Stephen. You know, the the whole debate about supply-side economics that happened since the Reagan years, where people said, hey, Give the wealthiest people money, give them tax breaks, cut their taxes massively, and they then that will cause growth. And we know that didn't happen. But if you actually fix our infrastructure and make us more globally competitive, if you actually raise the education level of workers in American society, if you actually uh, lead to kids being healthier, uh, have less poverty, It it really does improve the balance sheet of the government because we need less uh, assistance to people over time uh, and our economy is more productive. It raises more revenue for us. So I think both we're willing to pay for it in the short term and it will redound to our benefit and improve our balance sheet in the long
0: term. Yeah, Uh, Bradley, I hope that's uh, a sufficient uh, answer to your question. Uh, This comes up over and over again. And there's always this argument about whether uh, spending is investment or, or debt. Uh, it, it is always uh, worth asking the question, how will we pay for the things that we want to do? Uh, let's quickly go to Amy and Pontiac. Amy, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thanks for having me on. My question is directly to Representative Levin. Does he realize how tired Democrats are right now? and how disappointed we are in seeing this infighting over reconciliation. I just really want him to answer me. We went through 4 years of Trump. I've been a Democratic volunteer since the late 80s and I'm beat. And I don't want to walk to another protest. I want something to get done. Please answer that question. Do you realize how tired we are mm. and how me, 55-year-old woman in Pontiac that pays her taxes, and volunteers every two years how tired i am and mm. how disappointed i am in what's happening mm-hmm. i had to google and i'm on the brookings institution website reading what reconciliation means right now and i have two college degrees
0: mm. wow uh, amy uh, i really appreciate you call you calling and expressing your frustration i think a lot of people feel that way and uh, it's it's good to to hear you in tone those thoughts, uh, Andy Levin, answer answer her frustrations.
2: Yes, I hear you, Amy, and I agree with you. I mean, there's a couple points about this. Number one, the only reason we have to use reconciliation is that we will not get one Republican vote for these badly needed programs to lift up the working people, the things you've been fighting for all these years. So you're going to go. You're going to need to keep going out there and marching. And um, But the, in terms of what we're trying to do, know that 95% of Democrats in the Senate and probably 90% in the House support the president's $3.5 trillion program, and they're the things you believe in. The problem is our margins in the House and the Senate are so tiny, a three-vote margin in the House and basically a half-vote <laughs> 51 to 50 in the Senate means that every single Democrat has to vote for it. So what I can assure you is those of us who are really uh, progressives who are fighting to get as much of the president's agenda done as we can are going to try to raise this lowest common denominator (laughs) that we have to deal with of having so such a slim margin and we need every vote. And but we are going to pass the infrastructure program and we're going to pass the president's uh, you know, a build back better budget as in the best possible way. Uh, So, you know, we're doing it and, you know, I have to give the president credit here and the Congress for that matter. I mean the $1.9 trillion, um, you know, American rescue plan that we passed was had the most funding for public schools ever passed at one time. Mm -hmm. It's what raised, the child transform the child tax credit and we've cut poverty in half so and there's a you know long list of things so just stephen i'm sure you saw this based on how we've measured poverty since 1967 poverty a couple months ago was the lowest it's been since that time ever measured. And that's right. completely because of what Democrats so, have passed.
0: So we're going to have to break soon, but but I, I do want to get you to, to drill down just a little on what I'm hearing from Amy, I think, which is frustration that I, I think she's anticipating the Democrats going to fold here and not get the things that they promised as a way of compromising to get the bill passed and that uh, people like Amy will feel Unsatisfied. I've only got about a minute left, but I but I want you to address that specific point.
2: Uh, it's so frustrating, Amy, to deal with the very small number of—they're not moderates. They're very conservative Democrats who are saying, even though they voted to pass the $3.5 trillion budget resolution, then when we get down to writing the legislation— they're like, oh well, I don't want this or I don't want that or it needs to be smaller. So the president said to us, let's talk about the specific programs, and that's what I'm about. Let's let's work on getting community college for people, on um, lowering people's costs by reducing the cost of prescription drugs, you know, on getting people childcare and pre-K, all these great things. Um, Amy, we're going we're gonna to fight as hard as we can to get a really robust package through, and you deserve it. You've been fighting for it all these years, and you haven't been fighting for yourself. You've been fighting for other people, you know, and God bless you for that. And we're going to try to, you know, we're going to pass the, the strongest version of Joe Biden's vision that we can.
0: Okay. Uh, Congressman Andy Levin, it's always great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks so much. For joining
2: Thanks, Stephen.
0: Us. Okay, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to hear about Michigan State University's harrowing and backbreaking effort to get 77 people affiliated with the university out of Afghanistan as the country fell this summer to the Tamil Taliban. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We all watched in horror in July as chaos exploded in Kabul as the United States withdrew from our 20 year war in Afghanistan. The images of mayhem at the Kabul airport dominated the 24 hour news cycle for days, and we heard about the valiant and tormenting attempts to get people out of the country who feared their new Taliban rulers would come after them and possibly kill them. We're now learning about one of those efforts with direct ties to Michigan. Michigan State University had dozens of people in Afghanistan affiliated with the university when the country fell. According to Bridge Magazine, its effort to get 77 of these folks out of the country is likely the largest of any university that ran programs in Afghanistan. Here to talk about what that effort looked like from East Lansing and from on the ground in Afghanistan are two people who were involved. Kurt Richter is program director of Michigan State University's Grain Research and Innovation Project, or Grain. Kurt, welcome to Detroit Today.
3: Thank you, Stephen. It's great to be here.
0: And uh, Sarah Kaderi is an agricultural science scholar with MSU's Grain Project, who was one of the 77 people evacuated from Afghanistan by MSU before U.S. troops withdrew this summer. Sarah, welcome to Detroit Today.
4: Hello, and good morning to all.
0: So, Sarah, uh, I want to start with you. Give us your background and how you ended up working for MSU in Afghanistan.
1: Uh,
4: okay. Uh, I'm one of the uh, scholars of uh, MSU uh, University, and um, I was in second semester of my master's degree when uh, we left Kabul, uh, and we uh, were about two years with MSU.
0: And when did you start to realize that uh, your life might be in danger in Afghanistan?
4: Uh originally I'm from uh, uh I'm from uh Kapsa province of Afghanistan. Uh before the Taliban took the control of Kabul, uh the center of the Afghanistan. They have taken the um the control of our province Kapsa. Uh, so in uh, our district especially in our district nihr on here uh, some of our relative um, were on here and uh, the taliban knew that from them that uh, i wa- i'm working with a u.s founded uh, project and i also working with an angels uh, uh, so a month before the taliban um uh, came and sized the kabul a letter appeared on the doorstep of our house, uh, our, in our house in the Kabul city.
1: Mm.
4: On uh, that letter, uh, they mentioned that uh, they will uh, treated me uh, with the kidnapping and uh, killing me and my family because I worked with a US-founded project, and they call it and this letter me uh, the spear of uh, the American. Mm.
1: Uh,
0: k- Kurt, can you talk about GRAIN and its work in Afghanistan and how you felt here, knowing that Sarah and the other uh, folks who are affiliated with MSU might be in danger if they stayed?
3: Yeah, sure, Stephen. Yes. First off, uh, when- uh, the GRAIN project was focused on helping Afghani researchers, scientists, and scholars be better at producing science that would allow Afghanistan to produce more wheat to feed its people. We were focused solely on building the capacity of individuals and researchers and universities to be able to be better at producing more wheat, which is the staple food crop in Afghanistan. 60% of the daily calories consumed in Afghanistan are from wheat and bread-based products. When we heard the situation deteriorating and saw it deteriorate in Afghanistan, we became very concerned very quickly. Um, we, our assumption was that our scholars, like Sarah, and our staff who work directly for MSU in Afghanistan would be at risk simply because of their affiliation with our project, which was funded by the United States Agency for International Development, mm. and when we heard the facts of... Like the Sarah like the letter that Sarah received that gave us um, every reason to work really hard for many many days to do all we can to get people out of afghanistan
0: so so Kurt, why was the Taliban specifically interested in targeting people involved with your program It wasn't
3: just our program it was all programs um, the Taliban was not receptive to a couple of things that Grain is quite proud of while we did. One of them is, you know, using U.S. government funds to improve the situation for people living in Afghanistan, the poorest of the poor. And the other thing, Sarah, an example of, we valued and took great pride in the fact that we were educating women to be future leaders of grain research in Afghanistan. And, you know, education of women is, well put it mildly, not a priority of the Taliban. And our program was designed to facilitate and support and nurture the next generation of female agricultural researchers in wheat science in Afghanistan. Mm
0: -hmm. So Sarah, I want to go back to you. Uh, You and the other 22 grain affiliates, had just finally gotten inside the Kabul airport when the suicide bombing that killed more than 70 people uh, explode, exploded outside. Can you describe what that scene was like and what was going through your mind at that point? Uh, yes, Um
4: First, uh, the first time that I received an email from uh, uh, from a state department, and on that email they said that uh, came to the camp in um, Salivan next to the airport. Uh, so I um, I managed to go to the um, camp, and when I uh, went here, there was a full of rush of people, uh, also. There were uh, more than uh, uh, 2,000 people were trying to uh, enter to the airport and um, to um, get closer to the gates. Uh, But um, uh, there was many dash of people and um, there was um, um, uh, gunfire and uh, tear gas. They have used tear gas and um uh, the, the taliban um, uh, won't allow people to go to the gates but uh, um, it was on um, 18 august i guess. Uh, um, I, uh, I have tried to get, um, to go to the final gates and i reached um, uh, to the final gates but there was no food uh, no water at least to survive mm. but I prefer to be on here and waiting to uh, reach uh, me to the um, uh, American staff. But unfortunately, on this date, I can't do that. Um, So I came back to the home. Uh, Another day, um, it was uh, 25, I guess. And um, um, the... MSU managed um, uh, the airport that we can um, go to the airport through the uh, course. When we were in the uh, course um, for this um, to go to the airport, um, the Taliban don't allow us, um, and we were away for about uh, 12 hours inside of the airport, and we have tried many times to go to the. And, and to enter to the airport but unfortunately uh, we can't do it because so don't allow us uh, we go to the another door of airport which was controlled by um government on this door we was able to uh, go to enter to the airport we was uh when uh, we came and um, to the To go to the uh, airport, on well, there was um, also rush of people because um, we have we have to be wait for the biometric. On that place, uh, we just uh, hear some sound, uh, fire sound, and um, uh, we informed them that uh, there was um, an alert, and uh, they informed us there is an attack from the Taliban. They um, they have attacked airport. You know, it was. It was a very scared feeling, and it was very bad feeling because we, um, with the very in the very hard situation, we can enter to the uh, airport. We were uh, entered to the airport. There was a Taliban attack. We have uh, and they stopped uh, the American staff stopped the working, and we should um, be with on this night in the in the airport, and we have waited. For about uh, ten hours on the airport, until um, the uh, until everything was normal, and they uh, again started biometric, and after passing biometric, we able to go to the plane. Hmm.
0: Uh, I mean, it just sounds so frightening, and uh, I can't imagine. The kind of uncertainty that you were facing at that moment. Um, Kurt, you experienced something similar when you were in South Sudan in 2013. Uh, tell us how that went and how it might have informed your efforts to get your colleagues out of Afghanistan recently.
3: Yeah, um, it's when you're in a situation, uh, you're being evacuated. My situation is different from Sarah's. I was, I did not live in South Sudan. I was there doing some work. Um, And everything you do, all your sole focus is getting a seat on that plane. Mm. And there's two ways to think about that. As a person who's being evacuated, you want to do all you can to make sure you do everything you can to get onto that plane. But for people outside of the situation where I was in this situation, it's invaluable that you have people who are working as hard as they possibly can to secure you a way out of the country. Um, evacuations are not orderly. They are um, chaotic, and sometimes the success of being evacuated has a lot to do with luck and being at the right place at the right time. It took us multiple attempts to get our people through the gate, and once they got through the gate, they faced another long, 24 hour period of getting onto a plane. Um, it's not, there's never one silver bullet to getting through an evacuation out of a country like this. Mm. It takes a lot of time and energy of working the problem from as many angles as possible. Mm.
0: Okay, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, I want to thank Sarah Kaderi for being with us uh, to tell her story about uh, escaping Afghanistan when we come back we're going to continue the conversation with Kurt Richter, Program Director of Michigan State University's Grain Research and Innovation Project talk about this kind of work around the world, how dangerous it is and how scary the situation was and still is in Afghanistan stay with us for more Detroit Today This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you have joined us. I'm talking with Kurt Richter. He's program director of Michigan State University's Grain Research and Innovation Project, or Grain. Uh, He was involved in MSU's efforts to get 77 people out of Afghanistan as the U.S. was withdrawing from its 20-year war in that uh, in that country, uh, we'd love to hear from you during the conversation as all as always. Uh, what are your hopes for those who've been forced to flee Afghanistan during the U.S. withdrawal and the Taliban's takeover of that country? Do you hope most or all of them will be able to make new lives here in the United States? Uh, also, what do you think we owe the Afghans uh, after waging war in? their country, for 20 years. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also also, uh, go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter uh, and uh, put comments there, as always. Uh, Kurt, I want to talk just a little uh, about what the federal government should be doing or should have been doing Uh, to help with this. Could this have gone differently if there had been uh, something more proactive?
3: Yeah, um, that's a really good question that many parts of the U.S. government are asking itself and reflecting on at this period of time. Um, I don't think anybody inside the U.S. government expected the Taliban to move as quickly as it did across the country. Um, That being said, there were... The situation was chaotic, but behind the scenes, there was a lot of really good people inside of the. US government that were working the problem really hard. And um, it's the work of those individuals that made it um, possible for us to do as much as we did. Um, you know, nobody had a crystal ball to see that what the Taliban would how quickly they would move or how quickly the government would fall apart. But once that situation became apparent in the reality, um I was personally involved in working with people on Capitol Hill and state Department and d o d who were working really tirelessly to make the best of the of a bad situation
0: hmm. uh, A lot of times when refugees take on entry level or hourly work below their qualifications just to get by and they're in a new country. Talk about your efforts and the efforts of others to try to make sure that once these scholars are here in the U.S., they'll be able to support themselves doing work that's on par with the qualifications and the work that they were doing before.
3: Yeah. um, Well, there will be very few of them who will be able to work at the qualifications the level they did before. However, um, there's an opportunity here to begin to work with these refugees to prepare them to become um, active, important parts of U.S. society. Um, And that means really figuring out how we can work with them now to prepare them to step into skilled and semi-skilled jobs in the United States where they're going. The United States is a big place, and these refugees are going to be going all over the country. And MSU is working with some folks in Washington, D.C., to put together a, a, a system where we would be able to begin training refugees based on where they're going for jobs that are available now. Hmm. Um, you know, the United States has a long history of incorporating refugees, and, uh, you know, we're excited to see that continue.
0: So I also want to talk about the program that you were running there in uh, Afghanistan, what its status looks like now and what you anticipate will be possible uh, now that there's a different government in charge and, uh, you know, the U.S. has not uh, got the kind of presence that it did before. Is, is your work itself in danger?
3: Um, our work in Afghanistan has stopped.
0: Um,
3: hmm. We are, our offices have been closed and we are in the process of um, the staff that remains we're finding ways to um, you know provide severance and support the best we can from afar u.s government regulations banned groups like any u.s government funding to be paid to support the taliban and so therefore any form of taxes payroll taxes employee taxes, anything like that, that can be going to the Taliban, um, violates U.S. law. And so because we are not a program that's specialized in humanitarian assistance, you know, providing food or health care to the poorest of the poor, um, our program is Afghanistan is stopping. However, our program supporting the long-term degree programs, we have students, in school in India and individuals like Sarah who we evacuated who we're working to find ways to continue their long-term education hopefully one day um, after their education's over the situation in Afghanistan returns to some form of normal they might be able to go back to Afghanistan and continue their their research or they'll be able to enter a, a, a new home and do that at a at a higher skill level than just a of refugee without the education.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Um, uh, Meanwhile, of course, Afghanistan is going through another drought, and there's a serious concern that people there will soon begin to starve. Um, Do you have any hope that the research that you're doing and the work that you're doing can, can help, or are you relegated to the sidelines and watching like the rest of us?
3: That's a good question. Um, our research could have helped. We were working on helping define and select wheat varieties that were highly suitable for growth in Afghanistan. Now, to do that, you need a functioning ministry of education, a Ministry of Agriculture, and you need um, you know researchers and universities working. Um, to the best of my knowledge, those systems are no longer functioning in Afghanistan and if those aren't functioning that work will not continue.
1: Hmm. Hmm.
0: So, so it's bad. Yeah, yeah. Um I also want to ask about the status of uh, Sarah Kadiri and some of the others who escaped Af- Afghanistan. Uh we didn't get to it when we were talking with her but uh she's now waiting for visa for a visa in Albania and that's a process that we all know can take a long time, uh, you know, it can take years, in fact, to get that, uh, that going. Um, uh, how are you feeling about her future and the others who escaped, who may be also waiting for uh, a way into the United States, uh, and, and uncertain about how that might happen?
3: Yeah, um, the people that we rescued, who are the refugees now in Albania have a have a tough road ahead of them. They've lost everything they had, um, and they are now in a country that they do not know, or waiting for visa into a country not in the country they do not know. For the scholars like Sarah and her peers, we are working with um, the United States Agency for International Development and the Agricultural University of Albania in Tirana to get them enrolled in a new master's program in English. That would prepare them for, um, you know, further education and be transferable to or recognized by Europe and the United States. For my staff who we evacuated, we're working on getting them into the United States um, as quickly as possible with the necessary support to allow them to get off to a quick start in the United States. Mm. Um, they're waiting for what the State Department calls a p one or p two visa to enter the United States, and it could take a year and we're looking for options to get them into the United States as quickly as possible, but also with the type of support that would allow them to get off to as fast and best start as possible as refugees
0: yeah and and what about the future of your program? When it decides to go to other countries, um, mm-hmm. is, it, is it now, I guess, not advisable to choose countries that are unstable? Although, of course, those are the countries that most need the help uh, that, that, that you're offering. Uh, but does this change the calculus, I guess, that, that you use to decide where to go and where to engage uh, the people who are who are working uh, in your program
3: ninety nine percent of the time, my work is very boring. My <laughs> friends think I live this glamorous life getting around the world working on these programs. but in reality, I go to conference rooms and sit in front of my computer and listen to PowerPoint presentations most of the time. It is not dangerous. <laughs> um, however, um, you know Michigan state has a land grant institution. Um, we have a model for education and outreach and economic development that is the best model in the world. And those of us, there are some of us inside of Michigan State University who we feel it is our um, part of our mandate to help other countries be better at educating their populations. And that's really what we're trying to do with our program. And um, there's lots of countries in the world that need um, our help. And those of us in Michigan State who do this work, we're dedicated to continue to do that. Now, fortunately, we very seldom end up in situations like we had in Kabul or like what I ran into in South Sudan. And so um, I don't I don't worry about those types of events. But I will say that this event showed me the capacity of Michigan State to rally around and support a group of individuals at a a crucial time of need. I'm very proud of the work that we did at Michigan State to get these people out.
0: Hmm. Okay. Kurt Richter, Program Director of Michigan State University's Grain Research and Innovation Project, or Grain. It was really great to have you here with us on Detroit today. Thanks so much for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate
0: it. Okay, that's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when legal scholar and author Anita Hill is going to join the show to talk about her new book, Believing, Our 30-Year Journey to End Gender Violence. And we'll look at a new study that finds Michigan does a really bad job collecting data on our criminal justice system. Detroit Today is produced by Jake Neer. The program director here is Joan Isabella. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan, And our associate producers are Nora Ryan and Sam Corey. Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. This is 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.